Good morning. morning. Wow, that's better than we do it at home. Um, I guess I I probably should introduce myself for a moment. Um, uh, My name is Scott Mitchell. I'm actually the assistant pastor at uh, Calvary Chapel in Boston, or actually we're in Rockland. Um, I've been Pastor Randy's assistant pastor since we started day one. Actually, um, I met Rich and Paula when they had just uh, drove out here and got off the highway. A long time ago. We hadn't even started. We started in 1989, and we were just actually at the place of planning to start. So um, uh, I remember Rich when Rich had hair. Uh, I actually had hair. So I uh, I can't keep it long anymore because um, it's in apostasy, and there's not enough friends, and it just kind of does what it wants to do. So I just cut it shorter now, but... Um, and I also understand that uh, I was, one of the reasons I guess I was invited, not only is Rich not here, but um, you guys have done the cycle on uh, the triumphal entry. Um, so since some of you have actually taught it in the past, you wanted somebody else to teach it. The, the story is the same, just so you know. We're not going to change it at all. But um, if you would... Um, What we do in Rockland is um, we actually stand to read God's Word. I'd like to read the first couple of verses. We're going to be in uh, chapter 12, verses 12 through 19. Would you mind standing up? I'm just going to read verses 12 and 13 and then pray and uh, and then we'll begin. So John is writing in verse 12. He says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Father, we ask that you'd open our hearts this morning and we pray that your spirit would have the freedom to speak the things that we need to hear. Lord, we're all at a different place this morning and there's things that We need to be open in our lives to you about. And we ask, Lord, that through the message today that you would speak to each one of us, that you would confirm things that need to be confirmed, convict us where convictions are necessary. We also pray, Lord, that you would comfort those that are in need of comfort. So we ask for your blessing upon our time, and we pray that Jesus would be glorified in all that we do and say. And it's his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. So I know you've been going through the Gospel of John with Rich, and there are multiple themes that actually run through John's Gospel. Um, Obviously, this is not a synoptic Gospel. The synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Synop, meaning you have a similar view. Optic is view, so you have kind of a similar or same view with those three Gospels. John's is much different. And though obviously still written to glorify Jesus and to discuss who he is, he has interesting things in there. Um, All throughout the Gospel, obviously, the deity of Christ is stressed. Um, There's the seven major signs that John gives us, the seven miracles. Uh, There's this consciousness 
of a transition from the Old Covenant into the New Covenant as he goes through there too. But one of the things that's interesting is that there's actually three cycles that run through John's Gospel. And each one of them are an increasing hostility against Jesus. And that's one of the things that John brings out for us. So in the first cycle, we see that uh, in John 5, when he heals the man at the pool of Bethesda, uh, the Jews, meaning the, the leadership Jews, they come against him. And then that kind of culminates at the end of John chapter 8, uh, where they attempt to stone him. Is that for me? That's okay. Happens all the time. So that's the first cycle. And then what happens is then he heals a man in John chapter 9. And that kind of culminates in John 10 where they try to stone him again. And then finally, this last cycle, which is really our text for today, the triumphal entry, is where things have escalated to a point where now they're going to have his ultimate rejection. And it's based on not the healing of somebody, but it's now based on the raising of Lazarus. So John is actually going to connect the problem with this triumphal entry back to the raising of Lazarus. So we need to understand Lazarus was not resurrected. That was not a resurrection. When you're resurrected from the dead, you don't die again. Lazarus, he died again. Okay, so uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 that there is an order in the resurrection. The resurrection is not a one event. The resurrection is a category. Christ the first fruits after them uh, at his coming. And so Paul lays out the resurrection as a category with individual events within that category. Because obviously Jesus being the first fruits and the promise of our own uh, rapture to heaven as the church. So, um, so we need to understand that. But, but this raising of Lazarus, whether you call it a resuscitation or whatever you want to, um, this is really now sparking more hatred towards Jesus. Uh, so much that it says back in verse 10, which I think you went over last week, it says the chief priest consulted as to how they might put Lazarus to death. I mean, think about that. These guys are like mafia bosses. Uh, they're like gangsters. They're sitting there trying to talk about how righteous they are and keeping the law, but yet, you know, now you have this loose end being Lazarus. He's alive. He is evidence that Jesus has a capability that nobody else has. It actually, John gives it to us as evidence of his Messiahship. But, so this guy's raised up from the dead, and then they want to kill him because he's evidence of that fact. And people are believing in Jesus because of it. Uh, he's like a loose end in a bad gangster story, you know. These guys want to get rid of him. It's really interesting. But when your heart gets hardened against God, kind of all bets are off. I mean, unfortunately, when your heart is hardened against God, the more work he does, the further you get angered and hostile against him. It, it grows in that direction. So, important for that. Now, we see hard-heartedness all through the Bible. It's a common thing. Um, 
but we can often miss the, the point as we look at it that God's love and his activity, though it, it softens one heart, it hardens another. Now that's not because God is making that happen. That is the receptiveness of the person, right? Uh, I think it was Adam Clark that said, you know, it's the same sun that melts the wax and hardens clay. So uh, this is actually what's happening. If people are receptive to the truth of God, then their heart softens. So it's kind of like Pharaoh. Um, God provided Pharaoh opportunity to repent, if you go through the Exodus story, uh, a number of times. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart a number of times until God actually confirmed him in that place. Uh, when a person keeps resisting and resisting and resisting, then at a certain point, God does not reach out anymore. Now, God's the one that makes that determination, but God gives everybody opportunity. So Pharaoh had just as much opportunity as everybody else. When you, when you are judging Egypt with ten plagues, um, then that is, that is expanding time. That's giving a moral time uh, restriction for the people in Egypt. You know, there was so many things going on demonstrating that the gods they were worshiping were false gods. That's what the ten plagues were against. They were all against false gods. Um, Pharaoh had just as much opportunity to repent as anybody else. And uh, if God wanted to, he could have just destroyed them immediately. But he didn't. Judgment really gives space for repentance. And, I mean, we learn even in Genesis that God said to Abraham, he was going to send the Jews down to Egypt for 400 years uh, because the iniquity of the Amorites was not yet full. So by the time they came up to the land, you know, Rahab um, was great evidence that God will certainly save anybody that wants to be saved. And then at the same time, when she said, we heard all about you guys, everybody knew about the God of Israel. But the problem is, over that really more than 400 years, because you had the time of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob's life, their time in Egypt, um, instead of them realizing that they needed to repent, God gave them that moral length of time uh, to repent, but his mercy was exhausted, and the land was vomiting them out. Why? I mean, they were sacrificing babies. They were killing people. They were murdering themselves. So all this paganism and this false worship always ends up destructively in that way. So... It's after this incident in this chapter, after the triumphal entry, John tells us that the unbelief and hard-heartedness of the Jews is even more evident. Uh, he quotes Isaiah chapter 12 uh, in verse 39, and he, he makes an interesting statement. He says they could not believe. Now, it wasn't that they could not believe because God was preventing their belief. They had brought themselves through their hard-heartedness and continual rejection of the witness by the works that Jesus did, the statements that he made, all the evidence fulfilling Scripture um, that he was the Messiah. And as they hardened and hardened and hardened themselves, eventually God judicially hardened them by basically leaving them in the state that they were in 
uh, and wasn't reaching them anymore. So it's kind of a callousness that works on. Uh, just like if you're, you know, if you're a weightlifter, after a while, you know, you get calluses on your hands because, you know, you put in chalk and the bar's rubbing on your hands and you build up a callus. Or if you do any kind of work, uh, if you're a carpenter or whatever, you know, your hands get calloused. Um, and that's because there's that continual abrasiveness against it. Well, our hearts can do the same thing, which is why we need to stay sensitive to God. Now, again, in John 18.37, when Jesus was before Pilate, he says, For this cause I was born, and for this cause I came into the world, that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. So, people that were open to the truth of God would receive it, and those that weren't, like the Pharisees, the scribes, the, the Herodians, and everybody else, the leadership, they were hardening themselves continually and resisting the truth, um, which ended up putting them in the position of unbelief that they ended up in. So, finally, as an introduction, I know it's a long one, right? Um, John gives us a contrast through his gospel. And the contrast is between unbelief and faith. And it's a clear contrast. He actually uses the word believe 52 times and believed 27 times. Now, obviously, some relate to believing and others to unbelief, but he does not use the word faith in his gospel. So he obviously believing is synonymous with faith, but he doesn't actually use the word faith. He uses believing because he is contrasting belief with unbelief throughout his gospel. So we'll see in the text that we have faith in the followers of Jesus, and then obviously the Jewish leadership is exercising their unbelief. So to begin, uh, verse 12 and 13 again, it says, The next day a great multitude that had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took branches of palm trees, went out to meet him, and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. So these palm branches were symbolic of rejoicing uh, and triumph. Actually, if you go back into Leviticus 23:40, it talks about using them in celebration of the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when the Jews used to sit out for a week under the open sky and remember how God... Um, provided for them in the wilderness. Now, <clears throat> when these people that were coming to Jerusalem, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, the indication is, is that they wanted to get introduced to him, follow him, uh, find out about him because of the miracle of Lazarus's raising. And so they were eager, really, to meet him and or to follow him. So there were those that were in Jerusalem and in Galilee, which is up north in Israel, um, that had rejected Jesus and were hostile to him. I mean, even in his own, uh, his own town, right? Luke 4 tells us that when he got up to read at the end, when he said, you know, the scripture is fulfilled in your ears, when he read from Isaiah, uh, it says they, you know, they wanted to stone him. So, uh, common occurrence, apparently, but um, they, 
you know, they were rejecting him there. So whether he was ministering in Galilee, because he had a Galilean ministry as well as a Judean or around Jerusalem, the lower part ministry, regardless of where he was, he had people that had rejected him uh, in both of those locations. So the visiting pilgrims, though, in other words, the people that were coming from all around Israel uh, for the Passover, they would, you know, this is a time where, you know, a couple of million people at least would be just kind of pressing into Jerusalem. The place would be packed. Um, you know, it was the annual event, and there was a, just there was a lot going on. So as they were, these pilgrims are coming in, they're hearing about, you know, what this guy Jesus did and, and how he raised Lazarus from the dead. So they were, they were eager to find him and follow him. So as they did, um, as we read in the verse, they're quoting Psalm 118. Now, Psalm 118 is one of the Hallel Psalms. Hallel means praise. And so the Jews would, they would, as they move their way to Jerusalem, whether it was for the Feast of Tabernacles or the Passover, or at the Paschal Supper, what they would do is they would sing Psalm 113 through 118, those Hallel Psalms, and they were Psalms of praise in preparation, actually, for the king, for the king to come. So that was common to them, and they, every Israelite probably um, knew them by heart because they sang them so often. So it was a Messianic Psalm, and again, John is giving us that in information because it is prophetic evidence that Jesus is the Messiah. He is being received by the general people as such. So then we get to verse 14, and it says, Then Jesus, when he had found, important word, a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. So the fact that he found it and sat on it, understanding that he would be fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, Zechariah 9.9, meant that he was revealing himself as the Messiah. You know, this wasn't an accident. It wasn't just something that uh, I need, you know, I need something to ride on. This was very, very specific. And he was claiming that he was the king of Israel. And the Synoptic Gospels give us a little bit more detail and variance with the, what they call the triumphal entry here. Um, but John's interest here, more than anything, is connecting the activity f to the fulfillment of prophecy. Now, as a side note... <clears throat> Though we read the Gospels and we read kind of the stories, we don't want to miss the fact that the Gospels are providing us evidence for our faith. So there's really no place in the Bible that I can think about where God asks people to believe something without giving them a reason why. In other words, he, he establishes our faith based on evidence. I mean, you read in Isaiah in the 40s chapters, and he says, look, go ask the false gods these questions. He says, look, 
I'm the one that says things beforehand and then they come to pass, right? Like, I don't have an equal, nobody else can do this. Do you understand the difference between me and these pagan gods? They can't do this, right? Uh, one of the Hallel Psalms, right? Uh, Psalm 115 talks about how idols, they have eyes they don't see, ears they don't hear, mouths they don't speak, hands they can't do anything, because they're just, they're just dead idols, right? So even later on in the Gospel of John, you guys would get to those chapters, um, 13, 14, 16, where Jesus will tell his own apostles that, look, I'm telling you these things ahead of time so that when they actually happen, you'll believe. I mean, in other words, there's evidence to that. I mean, it's pretty good evidence if you can sit there and not only say that I'm going to be crucified, but I'm going to raise myself up in three days. Now, if you can do that, everybody should be listening to you, right? Mm -hmm. So that's, that's evidence. That's not just uh, a claim or a statement. Things that are very specific like that in the Bible, those are evidences that God gives us because, you know, this isn't like the Hollywood version of faith where it's like, well, you know, just, you just need to take this giant leap of faith into the unknown. Oh, absolutely not. When we take a stand in faith as, as a Christian, there is evidence for our belief. You know, a lot of people, they get to the place where they get um, maybe disillusioned, they go through a hard time, and, you know, they'll walk away from God, and they'll say, well, you know, um, uh, God isn't, he's not coming through for me, or he's not doing what I want. It's like, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. First of all, we have to remember who's God in the relationship, right? It's not us. So secondly, did Jesus not rise from the dead? In other words, whatever my frustration in life is, whatever I'm disillusioned with or upset about or I can't control and I get angry at, that's not changing any of the facts of the evidence that exists, that Jesus died, was buried, and he raised three days later from the dead. My, my, my perspectives, my attitude towards that, doesn't change any of that. That's still true. So regardless of what I feel or my emotional state or my psychological state, that none of that is going to affect facts and evidence. So we need to base our life on that. And the reason I mention that is because so often uh, I think a lot of some of the modern Christian communication, you know, books, TV stuff and everything else uh, has a tendency to uh, drive Christians to have faith in faith, uh, faith in, in emotions and things like that. Those are all things that change, you know. Um, some people you know, before they have a cup of coffee in the morning, they're not sure if they believe anything. You know, they have to have a couple of cups of coffee before they're Christians again, right? So we can't base things on that. We have to base things on facts and evidence. So we have this quote um, from Zechariah 9.9, so that there's no confusion as to what's taking place. Jesus is being revealed publicly as the Messiah and it's a fulfillment of prophecy. Now, the Old Testament tells us a lot about 
who the Messiah was going to be. If we go back to the Garden of Eden, the first prophecy in the Bible, Genesis 3.15, right? The seed of the woman. Well, we know the Messiah or the deliverer at that point, he's going to at least be human, right? So then after that, we get to Abraham, and we know he's going to be, God starts this whole nation from this guy, and we know that he's going to be from one of Abraham's descendants. So we're narrowing things down. So he's going to come from this nation that God is creating. And then within the nation, you get Jacob's dozen there. He's got 12 kids, and then he's going to come from the tribe of Judah. We learn that in uh, Genesis 48. And then we get to 2 Samuel 7, and David gets the promise that the Messiah is going to now come from his dynasty. So we're narrowing things down. Isaiah 7 tells us, you know, you get the Christmas cards, that he's going to be born of a virgin, right? That gets very, very narrow. And then, where is he going to be born? So it's not just who he is, where is it? Well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem, Micah 5, 2, right? And then, finally, Daniel tells us when he's going to be born. So <clears throat> there's a book written by a guy named Sir Robert Anderson years ago. He used to, he ran... Scotland Yard for a while, and he wrote a book called The Coming Prince, where he actually um, goes through the calculation of Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9. Have you guys studied the book of Daniel yet? Or? Okay, so you're pretty familiar with that. So Daniel says there's 77-year periods that are going to come upon the nation of Israel, right? And they're going to start at the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Now, they were just coming back from their 70-year captivity, right? The Jews had been sent to Babylon for 70 years. And then as they're coming back, the starting point, according to Anderson in his book, was March 14, 445 B.C. And that's when Artaxerxes gave Nehemiah, um, you know, the authority to go back and to start rebuilding Jerusalem. Ezra went back to do the temple, but the actual city was through Nehemiah, right? And then if you take those seven, seven-year periods from that standpoint, you know, from Daniel 9, there's only 69 of those seven-year periods that will be accomplished when the Messiah is cut off, okay? In other words, he'll be killed and won't receive his kingdom. And then there's another seven-year period off in the future. We call that the tribulation period. You guys are familiar with that? Yep. So the 69 seven-year periods, your math majors, stay with me here, right? So you have to convert it into 360-day years, so then it's easier to calculate it by days. So basically, if it's 360 times 483, you get 173,880 days from the time that Nehemiah started with Artaxerxes' authority to go back to Jerusalem to rebuild Jerusalem in that wall. And then you come to uh, the 10th of Nisan, which, according to Exodus 12, was the inspection day for the Passover lamb. Passover was sacrificed on the 14th of Nisan, but the lamb was inspected on the 10th. That 10th of Nisan falls on April 6, 32 AD, which is the triumphal entry that we're studying today, the day that Jesus rode in and presented himself, though he was received 
obviously by God the Father as being the sinless, perfect lamb, he was rejected by Israel's leadership. It's pretty significant, right? Evidence. Now, <clears throat> there's this guy, I think it was 1958, um, named Peter Stoner. He wrote a book called Science Speaks. You can actually, uh, you can Google it. It's up on the web. Um, and chapter 3 deals with this specifically, but what he did was he calculated, he was a mathematician, he calculated uh, with his class uh, what the chance factor was of one person fulfilling only eight prophecies. Now, one of the prophecies happens to be the Zechariah 9-9 prophecy. So, and, and one of them is that he would be born in Bethlehem, which obviously limits the number of people, right? There's only so many people born in Bethlehem. So when somebody says, oh, we think the Messiah is coming out of the Bronx, that's not going to happen, right? So, um, so he's got to come out of Bethlehem. Now, when Stoner did the calculations, what they did with just eight prophecies, right? And there's, there's literally dozens of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Uh, and many of them have nothing to do, obviously, he couldn't, as a, as a human being, he couldn't plan where he's going to be born or when he was going to be born. But um, to fulfill eight of those prophecies, it comes out to 1 in 10 to the 17th power, or for us non-mathematicians, that would be 1 in 100 quadrillion. So I can't even say it, right? So that's the chance factor that one person could actually fulfill eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. He also likened it to filling the, the entire state of Texas with two feet of silver dollars, marking one, mixing it in, and then you walk in blindfolded somewhere into the state, and the chance that you will pick up that silver dollar is the same chance. So, evidence. But we need to notice that when Jesus came into Jerusalem on this donkey, he was not coming as a conqueror. He was coming in peace. And if he was coming as a conqueror, he would be coming on a horse. Now, the real triumphal entry is actually Revelation chapter 19. That's when he does come on a horse. But we call this the triumphal entry, um, you know, to identify it, but... Technically, that one would be. So he comes in on this donkey because he's coming in peace. And he was coming the first time, obviously, to take care of the sin problem before he comes the second time to establish his kingdom. Now, there really can't be a kingdom of God on the earth where sin, rebellion, disease, sickness, plagues... Um, just all kinds of wickedness running amok is happening in the world. Remember, Jesus prayed in Matthew 6. He says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Well, right now, things aren't being done like that, right? So in heaven, everybody does what God says. Nobody has an issue with it. Down here, everybody fights it. So when Jesus brings the kingdom to the earth, Revelation 19, there's not going to be any question because all of the, the reigning wickedness and craziness that's going on now 
It's all going to go away. You know? Now, it doesn't mean that there will be people that are not redeemed people. Um, you know, the, the people that survive the tribulation period will populate the kingdom, the believers, but, um, but they'll still be, you know, in a human body able to reproduce with a sin nature. So, um, not the rest of us, though, at least as far as I'm concerned. I, I am pre-trib and uh, pre-millennial. So, if any of you think you're going through the tribulation, we'll see you in seven. We don't have to fight about it, right? <laughs> so, all this brings us to a point that's important. A lot of people missed Jesus initially because they had wanted a different Messiah than the Messiah he was presenting, right? They wanted a conquering Messiah, uh, not a sacrificing one. But this is the difference between what God knows man needs and what man thinks he needs. Now, the Jews wanted somebody that was going to unburden them of Rome. Rome had dominion over them. Um, they wanted political freedom. So the, the problem is, is that what man feels he needs isn't always what he does need. Talk amongst yourselves, right? So as, as God was providing what man needed, that's why the first time Jesus had to come and deal with the sin problem. Now, he could have easily put down Roman dominion. He could have squashed Rome, and it wouldn't have been any issue at all. But the problem is, is that the people were not in need of political freedom as much as they were in need of personal freedom, just like everybody. Look, you can have... You can live in the U.S. where we have political freedom and you can be bound in sin. You can live in a country that has no political freedom and be freed from sin. Remember, Paul the Apostle is in jail like that, right? So the question is, what's better? Well, obviously, political freedom is temporary at best. Personal freedom is eternal because we're freed from the bondage of sin. Now, obviously, it's ideal to have both, and we can enjoy that right now in our own country. But if you had to pick one over the other, the personal freedom is obviously the most important. Nobody wants to be bound in sin. But the problem is today is that people still have a misdirected understanding of what they think Jesus needs to do for them like the kind of um, savior he needs to be, right? So we have, we have the people, you know, within, the, within Christianity that, you know, they want, they want a political Jesus. So they want him to kind of, you know, be the government. You know, they want to almost denominationalize uh, the federal government. Um, but, you know, that's a, that's a two-edged sword. You know, if you make the federal government some kind of Christian denomination... If it's not yours, you won't like it, you know? So th that's not the design of government. You know, government wasn't created to be the church. Then you have the people that want, you know, they want the economic Jesus, right? They want the financially prosper, uh, um, prospering Jesus, the, the one that's going to, you know, give them nothing but bread all the time. You know, John 6, evermore give us this bread. You know, the lady at the well in John 4, 
you know, um, you know, oh, you're going to give me water, I'll never be thirsty? I'll take that, you know. But, you know, you can write over every endeavor that people will have for the rest of their life. Drink of this water and you'll thirst again. It's the personal freedom from sin that's most important in our redemption. And then, you know, of late, you know, there's the social justice Jesus. You know, we need to straighten out society so that somehow that will bring in the kingdom of God. Newsflash, the kingdom of God is never coming until the king comes first. We're not going to bring the kingdom in and somehow then, you know, that will enable Jesus to return. That's never going to happen. You know, they used to think that prior to World War I. They thought the world was getting better. You had the Industrial Revolution. Things were changing, the Enlightenment, all this. And then World War I happened. Then World War II happened. And then everybody realized, well, maybe it's not getting better, you know. And it's not, obviously. If, you, you know, if you're breathing and read the newspaper, you know it's not getting any better. But the problem is, is that those kind of disillusionments end up causing people to fall away. And it, it can be a hurt. Now, the problem of this kind of felt needs, like that's kind of one of the um, directions in preaching today, you know. Um, a lot of churches around the U.S. today, pastors will be preaching to what they consider felt needs. A felt need is what you think you need. So if, if you come in and then, you know, the pastor figures by some kind of survey or, um, or other demographic that people need to hear this. You know, that's what they want to hear. And then they preach to match what people's felt needs are or they feel they need. People like that. I mean, you know, hey, I want to hear about this. And then you come, hey, I'm hearing about that. I like this church. You know, they're really good. And then you come in, they don't hear it. It's like, I never liked it anyways. So um, felt needs is a problem. Now, if God was addressing felt needs, now I know you guys don't do that here. You're going through the Gospel of John. Um, I knew when Rich called and, and said, uh, you will be doing verses 12 to 19. It's like, there we go. Right on target, right? So, um, because w whether you feel you need the triumphal entry or not, that's what we're dealing with today. And God will speak through that to you. But, but if it's just addressing felt needs, then uh, really what you're doing is you're catering to people's wants. Now, if God was interested in just felt needs, then in Mark 2, remember the four guys that let the you know, the paralytic down through the ceiling of the house, you know, um, then he would have healed that man because that was why they did that. They wanted him healed. They knew that Jesus could heal. They let him down, right? But what did he do? He said, your sins are forgiven because that was his real need, though his felt need was that he needed to be unparalyzed. But to demonstrate that he could forgive sins and had the power that he was God in human flesh, that's when he said, take up your bed and walk. And the miracle, obviously, then substantiated the messenger, who was the Messiah, right? Now, I know it's not a real popular thing today, dealing with sin, but um, it's popular with God. Look, it sent his son to the cross, and it's the foundation of our redemption. So it is important, you know. I mean, 
We just don't want to get too far off and start chasing the felt needs thing because we'll end up way off course. And then we'll end up changing Jesus into somebody that he's not. And then we know we're in the wrong direction. So God addresses the source of man's problems and not what man thinks his problems are, right? So verse 16, it says, His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written about him and that they had done these things to him. So John gives us a couple of pieces of info here. He's first of all saying that they really didn't know what was going on. Now, we see this a couple of times in John uh, back in chapter 2 when Jesus cleansed the temple at the beginning of his ministry. Um, He ended up, you know, he was questioned about it by the, um, you know, the Pharisees and he said, you know, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And John gives us the little commentary note. He says he was speaking of the temple of his body, which we didn't really understand until after he was raised up from the dead. In other words, there was a lot of things that the apostles didn't really grasp when they were happening. And you guys will be getting to that in chapter 13 through 16, um, you know, with Rich. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that John is tying together here Obviously, the continued activity of Jesus with him being the Messiah. So um, what's interesting is that these guys, from what John is saying, they had no idea what was happening until way afterwards. And I think God always confirms his works and his acts to us, right? Um, There shouldn't be really a lot of question when God is acting when he is doing something, um, eventually the confirmation of that will be there. We don't have to guess at that. And then secondly, later on, um, when they're at the Last Supper in John 14, Jesus said to them, because they were struggling to hear what he was saying, he says, do not believe, do, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. In other words, based on just what he's saying, he says, or else. He provides them an option because they were struggling. He says, or else, believe me for the sake of the works themselves. So think about what he's saying. He's saying, look, I'm not asking you to have just this, this, this blind faith. If you're struggling with what I'm telling you, then remember what I did. Remember what I did as the works that demonstrated who I am and what my capability is as Messiah and King of Israel here. So that, you know, if you're struggling with what I'm telling you because you don't really understand it all right now, that's fine. The Holy Spirit will make it all clear to you. But just stay with me on this because you you can believe me because the works are evidence of what I'm telling you. And that's what John continually does. So God always confirms his works through his messengers, right? Moses, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles. Um, We get it through all of them. And then we can also, the better we know the word, understand not only his works, but see the confirmation of where God is working and then where he isn't working. Because the better we know the word, the more of a working knowledge, obviously, we have in discerning those things, right? 
And finally, in verse 17 and 18, he says, Therefore the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, bore witness. So they were the ones that actually saw it. And then he says, verse 18, For this reason the people also met him, because they heard uh, that he had done this sign. So we basically have, we have two groups here. We have the people that were with Jesus when he actually raised up Lazarus. And then we have all this other multitude that are coming in. All these pilgrims are coming into Jerusalem for the Passover. Now, what ends up happening is that they're bearing witness. The ones that actually saw the work were bearing witness to the people who didn't, but just heard about it. So you have this activity where these people are taking what they saw, what Jesus did, right, and then sharing it with all these other people that were eager, uh, that had heard about it, but were eager to find out where Jesus was and who he was. Because they were all, you know, you read the, all the different Gospels, you realize, there, you know, this multitude was kind of coming from Bethany, that area on Mount of Olives, the, it's just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. So they're all kind of coming into Jerusalem. That's what ends up creating this crowd with the, you know, the palm branches and everything else, welcoming him. But a lot of it was based on the fact that the people that actually witnessed the raising of Lazarus, because this is the culmination point, um, they saw it and they were sharing it. And through that sharing... They were bringing others, in a sense, to faith in their Messiah. Now, God does the same thing with us. You have two avenues to reach other people, right? Now, you don't always know until later, like, like we just read, what's going to happen with what you're doing. You know, God will confirm that you were used in some way later on, but a lot of times we don't know what it is that God is doing with us at that moment. We look back and we see and we realize, wow, God was like he really did speak through me to do that thing because we see how things worked out. And with this, you have this group that not only took what Jesus did and shared that, but they had their own personal testimony about who they knew that he was. And we do the same thing. So we have this objective thing with the Bible and we can share the evidence of the Bible like I've been talking to you about, right? So we have all this evidence uh, for our faith that we can share, but we also have what we have witnessed even in our own lives of what God has done in our own lives, which we call our own testimony. You know, you put those two things together to share Christ with people, and it becomes very powerful, you know? Um, and then finally... In verse 19, it says, The Pharisees therefore said among themselves, You see that you're accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after them. So, on the other hand, you have the frustration of these guys that are hardened, their bitterness and hard-heartedness, uh, because they were, they were closed off. And unfortunately, I've seen this among Christians, too, you know. Uh, sometimes you get Christians that are just, they shut down, uh, and they get hard-hearted, and they get bitter. Um, you know, I, I, I do an apologetics class at, um, you know, at our church, and, um, you know, we, it's a discipleship class. We put it up on YouTube, too, and, um, you know, some of the things that I bring people through, apologetics is really a way to kind of 
clear people's misconceptions, uh, false ideas and everything out of the way so you can share the gospel. And, you know, as you, as you do that, you know, you get into looking at, like, you guys know who, like, Richard Dawkins is, a big atheist, and all these atheists and people that are kind of promoting, you know, the, to believe in Jesus, you know, you, you know you're crazy, right? Well, um, I noticed that each time, you know, Dawkins is in a debate with some Christian or whatever, he hears the gospel over and over and over and over and clearer and clearer. I mean, I've, I mean I, I've listened to some of these guys that are in debates with them share the gospel in a way that is so clear and understandable, but yet you can almost watch him being hardened as it's being shared. And that's the difference. You know, the, the truth is there and the, and the evidence and facts behind it are there for everybody to investigate, right? But the problem is, even among Christians, we can get to the place where when somebody shares the truth with us, we resist, we resist, we resist, and eventually some of that resistance can come into our life, not only in hard-heartedness, but it results in bitterness, and bitterness ends up kind of distributing among everybody that you're around. You know, it's hard to keep bitterness contained in yourself, you know, kind of spills over all the time, unfortunately. But look, I've been a pastor for 31 years, and um, I think that I've seen, obviously, my share, like you guys have, of bitterness and hard-heartedness with people that are certainly not saved, because regardless of the evidence, they just don't want Jesus to be true, okay? But our problem as Christians is when it starts happening among us, right? And that's what we need to be careful about. We need to, in our relationship with God, be honest with ourselves and honest with Him. You keep your, clay, your, your slate clean in a sense, you know, what are we going to hide from God? I mean, look, he, he knows your thoughts before you think them. He even knows why you thought them, though you're not sure, you know. So he knows us better than we know ourselves. Understanding that, look, he loves you. His mercy endures forever. His grace is there for you. His forgiveness, he, he offers that all the time. Um, Lamentations 3, one of my favorite verses, his mercies are new every morning. Great is who? My faithfulness? No, I'd be in trouble. Great is his faithfulness. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Jesus is who he claimed to be and that we have our redemption and it is complete in him. Lord, we thank you so much that we are in Christ. We ask, Father, that our hearts would be open to what was shared today, that your word would take root in our lives and bear fruit for you. And uh, Lord, as you do this work in our lives, that as we leave here, that we can be witnesses out through the world, Lord, the people that we rub shoulders with, of how wonderful you are and the truth of who Jesus is and how he came to rescue them from an eternity in hell. We ask for your blessing upon our time. And again, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.